to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. We've been reading through Matthew's gospel together. In chapter 3, we read about Jesus' baptism and how the Holy Spirit came to Jesus when he was baptized. And then we read in chapter 4 how the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted. But Jesus was strong in the wilderness And now Jesus is about to begin his ministry of teaching and feeding and healing people. Healing. When people are sick, he touches them. Listen, they'll say a little bit about that, and we'll talk about it later. But I want you to pay attention to where he goes, who he meets, and what he says and does. This is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 12. The the bells are beautiful, aren't they? Yeah, listen, listen for the word this morning. When Jesus had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in a town called Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and they were casting a net into the sea because they were fishers. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. And so they left their nets immediately, and they followed Jesus. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers whose name were James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in a boat with their father Zebedee. They were fixing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately, they got out of their boats, and they left their father, and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And he cured every disease and every sickness among the people. And his fame spread throughout Syria. And they brought to Jesus all the people who were sick, all those who were afflicted with diseases and pains, people possessed by demons, having epilepsy, afflicted with paralysis, and Jesus cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. 
That is the word of God for us, the people of God. Together we say, thanks be to God. All right, I, I brought some things this morning that I want to show you. But in just a second, let me tell you something first. Um, in the story that I just told, Jesus goes to a place called Capernaum, which is right next to the sea. Did you hear that? The Sea of Galilee. It's a huge lake. It's about seven miles wide and 11 miles across, right? It's a pretty big lake. So what do you think that the people there did for a living? What do you think their job was? Well, they certainly could get water from the lake. Well, yeah, what do you think was in the, the lake? Fish. They were fishermen. So he's the people there, their names are Simon and Andrew and James and John. And Jesus looks at them and, uh, and he sees them out in their boats and he says to them, come and follow me. And guess what? Octopuses? You think they, there might have been? I, I, don't, I really don't know what the wildlife in the Sea of Galilee was like. And jellyfish possibly too. But now with these people that came and followed Jesus, these people, were they... Did, they, um, did he go to the king first? No. Did he go to the richest person in the world and say, I want you to follow me? No. Well, no. He went to these fishermen. And these fishermen made something with their fish. Do you know what this is? This, um, this is fish paste. Have you ever had fish paste before? You, you don't want fish paste? This is, it's made, you crush up these fish and you mix a bunch of salt in there. And do you know what? People in Jesus's day, they loved this. I, well, do you know what they call fish paste? What, do you know what this is? Who likes ketchup? Do any of you like ketchup? Yeah, I do too. Well, fish paste was the ketchup of Jesus's time. Like if you had french fries or if you had a hamburger, like you would put fish paste on your hamburger or your french fries. Ew. Ew. Are you sure nobody wants to try it? No, I'm not. Well, so here, here's what I, so what I want you to imagine, here's what I want you to imagine. The people that Jesus called to be his disciples were not fancy they were not important people. They were regular. They were people that made ketchup. You know, when you eat a bottle of ketchup, somebody picked the tomatoes. You know it's made of tomatoes, right? Well, when you put it on your French fries, somebody made this ketchup. Somebody picked all those, went out into a field, and they picked all those tomatoes. That's their job. And that is the kind of person that Jesus calls to follow him. Regular people who have regular jobs, they're not fancy, they're not special, but they are special because Jesus says to them, come and follow me. And guess what the story says? They put down their tomatoes, they put down their fish, and they went and they listened to Jesus and they followed him. And that's what you're invited to do too, whether you're old or young or important or whether you fish or pick tomatoes. You're invited to follow Jesus and listen and see the world that he describes and live in that world together.
Will you pray with me? Jesus, you tell us to come and to follow you and to leave behind our cares and our troubles and to live into the beautiful world that comes when we find ourselves and each other in following you. So may we answer your call and may we be your disciples. Amen. Well, there is a lot going on in this passage. Let's look at this passage together on a 30,000 foot level. Where does Jesus go? We are told in the passage that Jesus leaves Nazareth and he makes his new home in a town called Capernaum. Now, you may have to squint to see this map on the screen, but this gives us a sense of the geography of the place that we're talking about. You see Nazareth down there sort of in the middle of the screen, over the middle of the region, over uh, on the left-hand side. And you see the Sea of Galilee, that blue, big blue dot up there. And the town of Capernaum is up on the top of the Sea of Galilee. At his baptism, Jesus was probably somewhere farther on down the Jordan, but we're told in this beginning passage of, uh, that, that John the Baptist has been arrested, so Jesus uh, feels like he has to get out of Dodge, right? He has to leave where John was, somewhere farther south in Judea, and he escapes to Capernaum, which is way up there on the shore of this 7 by 11 mile lake called the Sea of Galilee. And that's where the beginning of Jesus' ministry take, takes place. So who does he meet when he goes to Capernaum? Well, he meets the people who live in Capernaum. And what do they do for a living? They live in the towns around the Sea of Galilee. They are fishermen. We know that Jesus meets Simon Peter there and Andrew and James and John, these two pairs of brothers. It's no coincidence that these men who live right alongside this big, beautiful body of water are engaged in the bucolic, pastoral work of fishing Jesus meets a couple of hardy, swarthy, bronze-skinned fishermen ready for an adventure, right? Maybe. Let's take a closer look at what's happening in this passage. And let's focus in on what Jesus does and what he says. Matthew says that his very first words in his ministry are, repent, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is what Matthew says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, first words are important, right? First words are a kind of a shorthand for the larger message that will, that will take place later. So what does this message mean, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near? Number one, those aren't originally Jesus' words. Whose words are they? John the Baptist's words, right? If you were paying attention, which I know you were, if you were paying attention in chapter 3, you know that those were John the Baptist's words. That was his message when he was calling folks to come for that life-changing dunk in the River Jordan. John was saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus has taken these words from John and embraced them as his own. Many people believe that Jesus was first a disciple of John. 
John's that he learned from John. I love that image because it roots Jesus in his community and in a lineage of deep wisdom. Even Jesus doesn't parachute in from heaven fully formed, right? Jesus has roots in a particular place. Jesus learns from teachers and mentors and elders like John. Repent, Jesus says. Now, y'all know what that means, right? Turn, right? Metanoia, turn. What is it to turn? What is it to turn and face in a new direction, a different direction, to follow a different path, to orient your life by a different set of cues? Why would someone turn? Why would someone heed these words of Jesus's? Why, why would any of us turn our lives around and change our lives? That's the key question in this chapter, I think. Why do these men, why do these fishermen, why do they look up from their boats, put down their nets, when this stranger starts talking to them? Why do they, why do they put down their life's work? Why do they give up their whole livelihood? Why, for crying out loud, do they leave their aging father in the boat to do this physically demanding work by himself? I'm not sure what kind of relationship you have with your father, but that seems like a controversial decision. What on earth did they hear Jesus saying? I've always struggled with the ease the apparent ease by which these men leave everything and follow Jesus. Why would they turn away from fishing and turn toward Jesus when he says to them, the kingdom of heaven has come near? The answer could very possibly be fish paste. Fish paste. Garum is what it was called in those days and still is in some places. Garum was a fermented fish sauce. And it was used throughout the Roman Empire as a condiment. It literally was the ketchup of the Roman era. Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John very possibly followed Jesus because of fish paste. Clear, right? Not yet? Let me say a little more. Let's talk about this fish paste. Let's talk first about how you make fish paste. I've got a little bit of it here. There are, um, there are lots of different kinds uh, of recipes to make fish paste, but basically you take a bunch of small fish and their guts and you spread them out and dry them in the sun and you heavily salt them and they, it takes a couple days, but eventually uh, they kind of wither up. And after they've dried, you run them through a filtering process. And the flavorful stuff that 
that drains out in the filtering process, like that's the good stuff. It's called liquamin, and it's got this umami flavor, kind of like Worcestershire sauce, right? It's great. And the garum was a hit, like it was hugely popular. Like people ate it all over the Roman Empire. There was great, like high quality fish paste, and the elites like could spend like top dollar on that fish paste. But even the poor folks got to eat fish paste. Your fish paste was just kind of cheap and it was thick. And uh, but everybody loved it. Everybody loved this garum. So we're gonna try a little bit. That is amazing, amazing and horrible. <laughs> Whoo! Oh my gosh, there's no water. Okay. <laughs> that was a mistake. Okay. So, um, so take one guess as to where archaeologists have discovered the remains of a giant fish paste factory. One guess. The Sea of Galilee. The capital of that region, the town up at the very northern part of the lake, was called Bethsaida, which means house of the fishermen. So you know there's a lot of fishing going on. But the Greek name for Magdala, the town on the western edge of the Sea of Galilee, uh, in the Greek is called Tarikeia, which means in Greek, fish canneryville or processed fishville, right? So there was a giant fish processing operation right there on the Sea of Galilee. Fishing is the heart of the Galilean economy, but, but you got to know, like, this, this fishing is not a free market. It's not like you got a bunch of these, these swarthy, good-natured, independent fishermen trolling out into the harbor every day to bring in their catch and take it to market, sell it for profit, and then go home at night and grill up a couple of bronzino for themselves and their family. This is the Roman Empire, folks. And you all know how empires work, don't you? Empires go in, and they conquer a place, and then they figure out what natural resources exist in that place that they can exploit. And they set up an operation to exploit those resources, to to, to extract all the profits, which then flow upward to the top, to the seat of the empire. Fishing at this time on the Sea of Galilee is an elite profiting state-run enterprise. Archaeologists and historians are still working to piece together how industries like the fishing industry on the Sea of Galilee works, but you can imagine something that works like this. There are only a small number of families who are given official licenses by the empire to fish on the Sea of Galilee. Everybody else who's fishing is fishing illegally. The legal fishermen are probably capitalized by the elites, which means they get their boats and their nets uh, on some kind of lease program from those who own everything, right? And so these legal fishermen are not independent, right? They, they spend all their time in this backbreaking work, this grueling labor, hauling in these nets day in, day out. They don't control the prices for their fish. They are taxed on every part of their business. They work every day for profits that are never guaranteed. The fish that they catch, they can't even keep. They deliver it to factories nearby where it is turned into this garum, this fish paste. Maybe even that fine kind of fish paste that gets exported back to Rome to please the taste buds of the wealthy who depend on suffering fishermen for the finest delicacies that their ill-gotten money can buy. 
We don't know exactly what kind of life that Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John were leading. We don't know where in this exploitative fishing economy they were situated. But could they have been part of the families that had been granted these fishing rights on the Sea of Galilee? Could they have been trying day in and day out to eke out a living with ever-shrinking margins as the Roman tax collectors extracted their cuts, as the elite buyers offered less and less for the fish that they hauled in, while creditors were still knocking on their doors, demanding payments for boats and nets. In the Christian tradition, we have traditionally spiritualized the calling of the disciples. We tend to think that it was something in Jesus' voice, a little, a little glint, a lilt in his voice, or maybe something in his eyes, right, the light in his eyes that motivated men and women to follow him. Now, I don't want to disparage Jesus this morning. I'm sure that Jesus had a certain je ne sais quoi. But it is every bit as likely that these men were suffering. They were suffering under the Romans and under their Herodian client kings, suffering and squeezed by this whole network of crony tax collectors who squeezed them for every last bit of profit. The fishermen on the Sea of Galilee were pawns in a game. They did grueling and dangerous work every day. For what? For fish paste, enjoyed by the Roman elite. So then one day they see a man on the shore. And this man begins telling them an old story. It's a story about God. And the story says that God created this world and everything that is in it, the sun and the moon and the stars and the seas and, yes, the fish in the sea. And in that good world that God has created, the earth is sufficient to provide food for everyone. And the man goes on to say that in this good world that God creates, the work of our hands is honest work. We are to tend the garden and fish in the sea, and we get to enjoy the fruit of our labor. And by that time, the fishermen are listening. And the man goes on with this story. He says, remember a long time ago when our ancestors found themselves enslaved to the Pharaoh in Egypt and God heard our cries and came to deliver us. God brought us out of the hands of our oppressors and God brought us into a land with milk 
and honey, this land. And remember, he said, how God commanded us to take care of each other, to ensure that everyone had daily bread, to ensure that those who were poor were never hungry, not for a day, and to ensure that debts would be forgiven so that no one lived in debt slavery. Do you remember that story? Jesus asks the fishermen. Of course they do. The story that I'm telling you, Jesus says, is the story of the kingdom of God, the empire of God. That empire is here. Put down your nets. Abandon this cruelty. Follow me. And we will live in God's kingdom together. I don't think Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John needed all that much convincing. They knew the story that Jesus was telling. They knew it was true. And they knew it was their story. And the kingdom he described was far more beautiful than the kingdom that had its boot on their necks. Following Jesus is a spiritual practice. But we do a great and a tragic harm when we try and portray the kingdom of heaven as though it has no economic or no political implications. The kingdom of heaven is an alternative economic and political reality. And following Jesus was both an act of desperation and an act of revolutionary courage. I've said this before, but I'll say it again to you this morning. We no longer live in the Roman Empire, for sure. But it doesn't mean that the kind of exploitation that provoked those fishermen to drop their nets no longer exists. Where else do we see people and resources exploited? What does it mean for us in the place that we live to hear Jesus' words again. Repent. Turn. For the kingdom of heaven and all that the kingdom brings has come near. Maybe the next time you pick up a bottle of ketchup and wonder who picked the tomatoes. You will ask yourself again, what does it mean to lay down your net 
and follow. Who will be your witness for my Lord? 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 Your hand, and, and my strength, strength will come like a natural man. So 